We have been in a series called Storyteller, and I'm so thankful for Glenn Dart. He spoke last Sunday. It was an encouraging word. I, I needed to hear that word. Uh, I've been really uh, finding some hope in the book of Revelation. When you read about Revelation 21 and 22 and the end of the story that, uh, that Jesus is victorious, that he has already won and we already have the victory. And so today we're going to be in Luke chapter 13 and, and uh, Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is the mission of God. It was the mission of Jesus when he was on earth. He was alive to tell people about the kingdom of God and to show people the kingdom of God. But it is the mission of God today. And it was the reason that Jesus told stories to tell people what the culture of heaven feels like, what it is like. And, and, and the message of the kingdom of God was always this upside down countercultural message. And we see uh, the most famous sermon that Jesus ever spoke. Many of us call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And it's a perfect example of how Jesus presented the kingdom of God as countercultural. He would say things like, you have heard it said, but I say this. In other words, he said, you have heard it said to love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But the kingdom of God is not like that. Instead, I say that the kingdom of God is that you love even your enemies. He'd say, you have heard it said that it's okay to return violence with violence and, and revenge is okay. But in heaven, the kingdom of God is actually a turning of the cheek. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a culture of reconciliation and forgiveness. And so Jesus would tell these parables to say, this is what you're used to. And he would shock people with these stories of what the, he- the kingdom of heaven is like, what the kingdom of God is like. By the way, he used the terms kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God interchangeably. So if you hear in this message me talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, I'm talking about the same thing. And today we're going to look at how Jesus compared the kingdom of God to a mustard seed and to yeast. Both of these things have small beginnings, but they have tremendous impact once they are fully developed. And, and in the verses just before these parables, uh, Jesus heals this crippled woman who's been crippled for 18 years. She's not able to stand up straight, and he heals her on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are around and they're watching him do this and they become offended that he would heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus calls them out. He calls them hypocrites and said, which one of you, if, you, if, if, uh, if one of your animals falls down a well or, or hurts themselves, wouldn't pull them out? I'm totally paraphrasing there. Uh, and, and Jesus calls them hypocrites and the Pharisees are ashamed and they walk away ashamed and everybody else is rejoicing and they're excited because of what Jesus did. And then Jesus right after this miracle, tells these parables. In Luke 13, 18 through 21. What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 60 pounds of flour. That's a lot of flour. Until it worked all through the dough. 60 pounds of flour is enough to feed about 150 people. And Jesus is saying that it just takes a small amount. It has small beginnings. A little bit of yeast worked into 60 pounds of flour is enough to feed a multitude of people. A little seed that is planted in the ground will one day become a a tree that birds can can perch in and by the way he's referring to uh, Ezekiel I think it's chapter 7 he's 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 referring to this tree that was that's mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 7 but to understand the impact of this parable you first have to uh, compare it to the Jewish understanding of the kingdom of God the expectation of what the kingdom of God was like for the Jewish listener, for the Pharisees that were there and the people at the time. See, the Jewish expectation of the kingdom of God was that it would come suddenly, that it would come all at once in power because Israel, since the time of Nebuchadnezzar, had, had taken them out of, 
out of Israel and brought them to Babylon. Ever since then, the people of God, Israel, was ruled by another nation. First, they were ruled by Babylon. And then the Greeks came over and overthrew them, or excuse me, the Persians came and overthrew them, and then the Greeks and then the Romans. And so now Israel is under the oppression of the Romans. And their thought was that the Messiah would one day come and he would raise up this military force and overthrow the Roman rule and establish the kingdom of God right there in Jerusalem. And so their expectation was this, this violent, physical, sudden overthrow that the Messiah would come and use military force to overtake uh, the Roman rulership. They wanted immediate and sudden change. They wanted the Messiah to snap his fingers and to fix all their problems. And can you and I relate to this? This is how we want God to move in our lives, don't we? Come on, let's be honest. When we pray, our expectation is, God, I want to see this happen right away. Come on, God, you said in your word that if, if I ask, I will receive. I have not because I ask not. So God, I'm asking for this. And then when it doesn't happen, we wonder, where's God? Why is he silent? Why, why did he tell me no? Why did he say wait? And we get frustrated because we are a microwave generation. We're a microwave culture, aren't we? We want things to happen right away. And when God tells us to wait, we get impatient. And, and we do, we think, some churches think about salvation in this way. Some people say, you know, you should, you should invite Jesus into your life because the moment you say yes to Jesus, he's going to come and he's going to fix all your problems and you're going to experience the blessing and goodness of God and, and you won't have any more worries or anxiety or fear and your addictions are just going to vanish. And we think about Jesus sometimes in this way that if we say yes to him, suddenly everything's going to change in an instant. And sometimes that is the testimony for some people, but it's not the reality most of the time. Instead, Jesus, he uses this image of a mustard seed and yeast to say that the kingdom will come slowly and steadily. But get this, it is a certainty. Jesus says that what, he, what God has begun, it will come to completion just like we talked a couple weeks ago about the seed that the that the sower that the that the farmer sowed along the different soils and we talked about how the seed worked in every case where it was able to take root the seed wasn't the problem it was going to grow no matter what it is a certainty and Jesus is saying that God has begun a tiny work God has begun this work but he's going to see it through to completion and in Matthew 24, 8, when he's telling his disciples about the signs of the end of the age, he says that those signs are the beginning of birth pains. He's talking about the coming, the end, the, the end times when Jesus returns and the coming of the fullness of the kingdom of God. He describes the signs of the times to his disciples in Matthew 24. And he says that those signs are the beginning of birth pains. He, he compares it to a, a woman in labor. In Isaiah, he talks about a new heaven and a new earth that's coming. And he compares it once again to birth pains. In Isaiah 66, the Lord says this, Do I bring to the moment of birth and not give delivery? God is saying, do I, do I start something and not bring it to delivery? Do, do I start something in your life and don't see it through to completion? I'm a faithful God. What I begin, I will see to completion. I will see till it's finished. And Jesus came to show people that the kingdom, Jesus came to show people the kingdom of God and to bring people into that kingdom by dying on the cross. The inevitable truth is, is that God is bringing his kingdom to earth. We have the end of the story. In Revelation 21 and 22, you can read about it, that there's this picture of a new heaven and a new earth where God dwells among his people in a garden-like city. And what happens in between the end of the story is debatable. You know, people argue about post-tribulation, pre-tribulation, pre-millennium, post-millennium, all, all, these, all these things, and it's all debatable. But we know at the very end of the story, God dwells with his people and heaven comes to earth. Revelation 21, three through four. says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Man, I love this verse, church. Come on, you should be filled with hope when you read this. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. 
for the old order of things has passed away. God gives us a hope that his kingdom is coming. And whatever you're facing, whatever trial, whatever hurt you're going through, you have the hope of Jesus knowing that it is not always going to be that way. It's the joy of a mother giving birth. That it's painful in the moment, but she looks forward to the moment when she gets to look her baby in the eyes and hear his voice, her voice for the first time. Jesus wants you to know that you can find comfort in the fact that joy is coming. But here's what I want to talk about this morning. That joy is not just supposed to be experienced when Jesus comes again. It is a joy that you have access to today. It's a hope that you have access to today. So the kingdom of God, is it here or is it still to come? Because when we read in Revelation, it says there will be no more crying or death or pain, and we still experience those things today. So we can say that the kingdom of God hasn't fully arrived But for some people, this question is up for debate because Jesus says things like this in Luke 17, verse 20. uh, On being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst or it's among you. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have brought the kingdom of God with me and because I am here, the kingdom of God has come. So what's the answer? Is the kingdom of God here or is it still to come? What's the answer? I wanna just briefly talk about three mainstream views of, of eschatology and, and the word eschatology is just the study of the end times it is the study of the second coming of Jesus and what's going to unfold when he returns and so when we say the word eschatology it refers to the study of the end times and so the first view is called consistent eschatology <clears throat> which this view says that the kingdom of God has not yet come or excuse me the kingdom of God has yet to come Yeah, I said it right the first time. It has not yet come, but it has yet to come with the second coming of Christ. We don't have access to the kingdom of God yet in this this view. And in the meantime, we wait. We endure the suffering of this earthly life. And we tell as many people about Jesus before he returns. And believe it or not, there's many people who live this way. And the attitude behind this view is that the earth is just heading for hell in a handbasket. And, and it's just, it's a slow decline until one day God's just going to grab the flamethrower and torch the place. And, and so let's just grind it out. Let's buckle down. Let's just brace for the attacks of the enemy until Jesus returns because we're kind of helpless that we don't have access to the kingdom of God. And we're kind of helpless until that time comes. And those who support this view have all their hope placed in life after death and in when Jesus returns. Now, those are good things to have your hope placed in, right? When Jesus returns and, and life after death, that, that, those are good things to have your hope placed in. But there's, this, there's another view. It's called realized eschatology. And in realized eschatology, this view says that the kingdom of God already came when Jesus arrived on the planet, born as a baby, And their argument is that, well, the Bible says that the Messiah would come, and he did when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The Bible says that God will judge the sins of the world, and he did when Jesus died on the cross. The Bible says that the dead will rise again, and they did when Jesus raised Lazarus and others from the grave. And those those who support this eschatology, they don't look forward to the second coming of Christ, but instead they look at the work that was already completed on the cross. And their their view is, let's just focus on what God already did and let's partner with his Holy Spirit. Now, all of these views still have the fundamental truths attached to them. Jesus died, he was resurrected, he's the only way to heaven, he's uh, he's filling you with his Holy Spirit. None of those are in question here. But here's the third view. This is the one that I personally put stock in. And I hope after this morning, maybe if you're not in this camp, maybe I can, I can, I can pre- present an argument to you that would help bring you over to this camp. But it's called inaugurated eschatology, which says that the kingdom of God was inaugurated with Jesus' first arrival to earth, but it will come in fullness when he returns. In other words, the kingdom is here, but not yet. It's a here, but not yet view. And this view is often compared to World War II. 
and how we had a D-Day and a V-Day. That on D-Day, June 6, 1944, we experienced the turning point of World War II. It was the turn of the tide. And it was when, it was when the Allied forces were suddenly kind of given, uh, uh, given a victory on D-Day. But we didn't actually experience the end of the war till May 8, 1945. That was our V-Day. And, and the view is that the cross was D-Day for heaven. It was when the victory was won. The cross was D-Day. It was the turning point. It was the turning of the tide. But complete victory is on its way with the second coming of Christ. When death and pain and crying and everything is totally obliterated once and for all. And it's so important to understand this. The reason we're talking about this is because people need to know that they have access to the kingdom of God right now. You have access to the kingdom of heaven today. Did you know that Jesus died to get you into heaven, but he rose from the grave to get heaven into you? Let me say that again. Jesus died to get you into heaven, but he rose from the grave to get heaven into you. He wants you to share in his crucifixion, in his death, so that the old you, the sinful nature, the desires of the flesh, can be put to death in that crucifixion with Jesus. But he also wants to share with you his resurrection power. Because when he was raised from the grave, we were all able to receive his resurrection power and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what baptism, water baptism, represents. Is that when you are water baptized, you are representing dying with Christ as you go into the water and your old nature, your old sinful nature going away. And as you come out of the water, you're sharing in God's resurrection power and Jesus' resurrection power. That's what water baptism represents. So I want to talk about where the kingdom of God is present because it's here today. You have access to it. It's not fully arrived yet, but it's here in form. It's here. Jesus brought the kingdom of of God with him. So where is the kingdom of God present? Basically, we can say this, that the kingdom of God is anywhere the king is present. Anywhere God's rule and authority are demonstrated is where the kingdom of God is. I want to talk about how God desires to exercise his rule and authority on the earth, through the church, and at work within every individual Christian. He has a plan to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth through the church, but at work in each individual Christian, that there's the kingdom of God growing and maturing in every single one of us who said yes to Jesus. So let's first talk about God's plan for the earth. The kingdom of God is expanding on the earth. That's number one. It doesn't have physical boundaries. The kingdom of God doesn't have physical boundaries, but it does have physical impact. There was a writer, his name is Andy Wilson. He said that if God wanted to share a spiritual kingdom only, he could have saved himself a huge amount of trouble by just skipping Christmas. He could have just skipped Christmas, but instead, God's heart was for the kingdom of heaven to have physical impact. So he sent himself down in the form of a baby so that his kingdom can impact the earth physically. Can I challenge you this morning, maybe to reconsider the way that you view the earth? What do I mean by that? Many people have this attitude that the earth belongs to the devil. So evil and darkness and pain, it's just going to slowly increase until it's just burned up on judgment day. Now let me ask real quick, is that an offensive mindset or a defensive mindset? It's a defensive mindset because the attitude is that the enemy owns the world It's just going to get worse and worse and worse until one day God blows it up. And so I'm just going to buckle down. I'm going to brace myself for the attacks of the enemy. And I'm going to hope that he doesn't target my family and and the loved ones in my life and come after me. And it's a defensive mindset. You're bracing yourself for another attack. But let me ask you this question. Who has authority over the earth? Who has authority over the earth? Let's look into this. Luke chapter 4. Verses 5 through 7, this is what happens. Jesus is baptized, 
And then he's led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That'll confuse, that confuses me. But he's led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the devil comes and he tempts him three times. And one of the times he says this in verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor because it has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. That's the devil talking, guys. I have authority. It's been, giving, it's been given to me, and I can give it to whoever I want to. Now, the interesting thing about this is Jesus doesn't refute it. He doesn't say, you're wrong. Actually, I have the authority. Instead, he uses scripture and says, the scripture says to worship the Lord your God only, right? But he doesn't refute the enemy. Is the enemy lying? I don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't think so. I think if he was lying, Jesus would have refuted him. He doesn't call his bluff. Instead, Jesus says, worship the Lord your God only. So if the enemy really did at that time when he was speaking to Jesus, if he had authority over the earth, who gave him the authority? Who gave the devil that authority? We did. You and I did. Turn with me to Genesis 1, verse 26. God said this, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule or have dominion over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, <coughs> over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. When he created mankind, he gave them dominion of the earth. He gave them authority. He gave them rule over the earth. And he said, I'm going to make man in my image. They're going to be little image bearers. They're going to look like me. They're going to act like me. And I'm going to give them rule over the earth. They're going to subdue it. Romans chapter 6 says that you are a slave to who you obey. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Paul says you're a slave to who you obey. And in the garden, Adam and Eve are told not to eat of this fruit. They're told to obey God and not eat of this fruit. And the devil comes and says, eat it. God's trying to trick you. God's trying to withhold blessing from you. And who do they obey? They obey the serpent. And they become a slave to who they obeyed. And in that moment, dominion of the earth was taken from Adam and Eve. It was stolen. It was unauthorized authority. It was taken away from Adam and Eve. And so the enemy had authority after that. But then Jesus says this in Matthew 28. After he is resurrected from the grave, he comes back to life. He appears before his disciples and just before his ascension, his great commission. He says this in Matthew 28. Get this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And get this. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. You're a slave to who you obey. Jesus says this. I have been given all authority and I can give it to whoever I want to. So I'm going to give it back to you guys. I'm going to give you back. I'm going to give you back the partnership to restore the earth and bring the kingdom of heaven back to earth. But teach people to obey me and not make the same mistake that Adam and Eve did when they disobeyed God and obeyed the devil. Teach people to obey the things that I command them because you're a slave to who you obey. He gave authority back to the church. Somebody say hallelujah. Come on, amen. <laughs> Teach people to obey me and not the devil. But, but what about all these other New Testament descriptions of Satan? Jesus refers to, Jesus himself refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. Paul calls him the prince and power of the air in Ephesians. This is all after Jesus' resurrection. So why are they still calling him these names? He's the prince and power of the air. Uh, and 2 Corinthians, Paul says that he's the god of this world, little g god of this world. Uh, John makes a further distinction when he says that we know that we are of God and the whole world is in the power of the evil one. 
So these references that all these New Testament writers are making, they leave us with this question. In what sense does Satan rule the world? What authority does he have over the earth? I mean, the mission of the church, the mission of God is to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, right? And that's a little difficult when we're at war with the ruler of this world. So in what sense does Satan rule the world? Well, we have to understand this, that when the Bible talks about the world, or this world. It's referring to a, a power system that is in opposition to God. It's an evil system in opposition to God. The Bible never actually teaches that Satan actually rules the entire world, but that he is the ruler of the current system of sinful opposition to God. In other words, he is leading the rebellion against God. That God Jesus has the authority over heaven and earth, but Satan is in control of the evil system that is in opposition to God. He's leading the rebellion against God. He has limited authority on earth. He's not like God. He's not like Greek mythology where you have all these gods who are brothers and they're equals and they're at war with one. Satan is a created being. He was created by God. He is not like God. The only authority that the enemy has, he only has it because God gives him permission to have it. He has to ask for permission. That's why uh, Jesus told Peter, he said, hey, Peter, Satan has come and he he's asked to sift you like wheat. If I was Peter, I'd be like, well, you told him no, right? <laughs> you told him no. Luke chapter 22, that's, that's where he says it. The devil has come and he asked to sift you like wheat. In the book of Job, what happens? Satan comes to God and asks permission to attack Job. Now, why God allows him to do those things is another sermon for another time. We'll talk about that maybe some other time. But, but what we need to understand is that God has a mission to bring heaven to earth. He's given, he, he hasn't given up on the earth he hasn't said, well, it belongs to the enemy. And so we tried. We tried our hardest. I'm going to go get my blowtorch. We're just going to burn it up. No, the mission of God is still to bring heaven to earth. It's still, that's why Jesus says in Matthew 6.10, to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't this lofty theological, intellectual idea, Jesus actually wants to see heaven on earth. He wants to see the kingdom of God come to earth. And Jesus says in this parable of the seed and the yeast that the kingdom of God has begun and it will be fully grown and matured. And here's the, this is the encouragement, the hope that we can take is that because it is God's plan, we can act in authority and we can act in confidence knowing that we are partnering with the plan of God to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. You have the authority. It was given to you in Matthew 28 when Jesus said, I have the authority, so go and use it. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son. Teach everybody to obey the things that I've commanded them, and I will be with you until the end of the age. I've not abandoned you. I've not let go. I'm still here on mission with you. In the presence of, in the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm still on mission to bring the kingdom of God to earth. You still with me? The kingdom of God is expanding on the earth. The second thing is this. The kingdom of God is expressed or modeled through the church. It's not the only vehicle. This is, the church isn't the only vehicle that God is using to bring the kingdom of heaven because the spirit is at work doing things that we can't understand. It's the mission of God. And we're partnering with that mission. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, it says, So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. That's what ambassadors do. They speak on behalf and do things on behalf of the person who sent them. You and I are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We are ambassadors of heaven, and we speak on behalf of of the kingdom of God. And we are called to show the earth, show people the kingdom of God and represent Jesus. The mission of the church is to bring people in union with a real king and into a real kingdom. And we do this by modeling in the church what heaven is supposed to be like. 
and bringing the kingdom of God to the rest of the world. The church is the people of the kingdom. It's not the kingdom of God itself. The church of God is not the kingdom of God. They are the people. We are the people of the kingdom. And we're supposed to contrast the kingdoms of this world. We're supposed to live in opposition of the spirit of this world. That sinful, evil system of opposition that's at rebellion with God, we live in contrast to that. We swim the opposite direction. And people are looking at the church to see what the people of the kingdom are are like. They're looking at the people of the kingdom going, is this kingdom a kingdom worth joining, being a part of? How many of you have ever been to Europe before? Raise your hand. If you've ever been to Europe, you know that uh, there are many different opinions about Americans in Europe. And if you go to France, the French, many of them don't think very highly of Americans because we're loud and we're overweight and we don't bother trying to learn any other language because English is the best language. It's the language of the world. And they're frustrated with Americans. Many French are, are frustrated with Americans, but... You know, those are generally accurate stereotypes. (laughs) But not all Americans are like that. You can't just say that about everybody. And it only takes one good example to change their mind, to change somebody's mind. It takes one good example. That's why it's so important to realize that the kingdom of heaven is modeled through the church, but it's it's at work in every individual as well that we each have a part to play in bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth because the kingdom of heaven is actually growing and maturing inside of you. It's growing and doing a work inside of your heart, which is number, point number three. The kingdom of God is at work within the individual Christian. And just like we live in the tension of a kingdom that is here, but not fully here, there's a work within you that is complete, but it's not yet fully manifested. Believers have been given a new nature and are set free from sin, but they still struggle with it. We are in a slow process of becoming more and more like Jesus. It's a work that was finished. We're given a new nature, but we still are walking in this tension that I have a new nature, I have a desire to follow God, and I still struggle with the desires of my flesh, and we war with that at times, just like Paul did in Romans chapter 7. But James, James chapter 1 verse 4 says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. He's saying there is a work that is still happening within you. That yes, it began when you said yes to Jesus, but it is still a process of spiritual growth. You are becoming mature and complete. Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking only at Jesus, the what? Originator and what? Perfecter of our faith. Here again, he's saying there's a work that has begun in you. He's originated it, and he will perfect it. He's going to bring it to completion. The work that he's begun in your heart, he will see through. He's the perfecter of our faith. Consider Jesus' story of the mustard seed as it relates to your spiritual growth. We often wait for larger-than-life experiences, don't we? To help us push us in the right direction. We feel the, the Spirit of God calling us to change something, but we tell ourselves, I'll start tomorrow. Because because tomorrow I'll wake up with just this desire to do the right thing. Because it's, the grass is always greener tomorrow. This isn't how the kingdom of God works. Every believer goes through seasons where you don't feel in touch with God. I'm just, things aren't thriving. It doesn't feel vibrant. We get discouraged. And it happens. Don't feel like you're the only one. How many of you have ever been a season where it just feels like I'm struggling to follow Jesus? I'm struggling to find the answers. Come on, every single person in this room can raise their hand. We've all been there. And it's okay. It's part of our faith as we go through these seasons of doubt. And God is still faithful in the seasons of doubt. And it carries us through those seasons. And we come back up to the mountaintops and we experience these moments with God. And we go back into these valleys. Those are, those are seasons we all experience. But in those seasons of low in the valley, 
We often rely on external forces to get us back on track. We wait for a conference or a special speaker or a Sunday message. And sometimes those external forces that we've been waiting for to help push us back on track, there's something that we don't want. Maybe they're a rebuke from somebody. Or maybe we get caught doing something that we shouldn't be doing and it's the catalyst that actually pushes us back closer to God. It's this external force. And, some, and many people wait for those external forces to help push them back closer to God and, and, bringing the heaven, and bringing heaven to earth. But if I could use this illustration, we like to visit other people's wells for water when we're thirsty. A lot of people, when they get thirsty, they see a man or woman of God that they respect or they, they have a pastor they like to listen to on YouTube. And, and, and uh, th- so they go online and, and they like to drink from other people's wells. They get water from other people's wells. But every other person has a limited supply of water. Every person has a limited supply of water because they're, they're drinking that water themselves, right? They got to keep themselves hydrated. And that water won't always be there to give you a drink. But instead, Jesus invites us to dig our own wells. To dig your own well. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John 4, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. We're called to drink from the source itself. The water isn't waiting somewhere out there. It is a spring inside of you welling up to eternal life. And we make little choices, little decisions every day to shovel dirt one load at a time, one shovel full at a time. And we dig that well. And when those seasons come or we're in the valley, instead of going elsewhere, instead of seeking the water elsewhere, we're all called to look within ourselves to the spring of life that Jesus has deposited inside of us and to, and to, and to come up with spiritual disciplines, to follow a path of spiritual formation that Jesus has laid out in his word, to dig our own wells and get access to that water that is inside. Now, does that mean we don't ever receive help from our brothers and sisters in the faith absolutely not we do sometimes we need somebody to show us how to dig a well we haven't dug a well ourselves before so we need to learn how do i stay in devotions how do i fast how do i pray what does real confession look like and and somebody shows us how to do those things so we can dig our own well and drink from the source itself when I was 18 years old, I feel like for the first time, I hit bedrock. I hit the water. Because up until that point, I had been waiting for special speakers and prophets to come to church, or I'd wait for uh, youth conferences and all these other things. And when I was 18 years old, I had an encounter with the Holy Spirit, and I felt like he gave me a shovel, and he said, just stay here and, and find me. You don't need to go anywhere else. There's, there's, you don't need to find the water anywhere else. It's here. You have it. You're filled with the Spirit. You have Jesus inside of you. Dig your own well, Blake. So I began digging, and I had this encounter with the Holy Spirit. And ever since then, yes, yes, I still, I still look at people and admire them, and I still gain and learn and, and grow from other people's lives. But, but the source of strength comes from the Spirit inside of you. And if you are reliant on drinking from others peop- on, uh, for other people's wells, you will go thirsty. And you will be discouraged. And you will wonder where God is. And you will wonder why you believe what you believe. Because you never learned how to dig your own well. The kingdom of God begins like a mustard seed. Small, seemingly insignificant choices. That if they're consistent, form into habits that affect our behaviors. And those behaviors determine our actions, and those actions have eternal impact. Oftentimes, those seemingly insignificant choices look like starving the flesh and feeding your spirit instead. Those seemingly insignificant choices look like starving the flesh and giving your spirit what it needs instead. In Romans 7, Paul says this, He says, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I do what is right, 
when, excuse me, when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love that Paul is just this honest with us because Paul's like our hero, right? And he's like, I just can't do what I want to do. I love God's law with all my heart. But there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. And this power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Paul uses this imagery of two powers or two desires that are at work in every person. There's a desire to please God. And in the same hand, there's a desire to sin. It's this Jekyll and Hyde story that lives in tension with the reality that our old self has already died. In Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about how our old sinful natures were crucified with Christ. They are dead and gone. Paul says in Romans 6 that your old self is gone. It is dead. It's never coming back. But in the next chapter, he talks about fleshly desires at war within it, with, with his mind. What is it, Paul? I thought, this desi- I thought this nature was dead. How come I still have these desires? How come I still have this tendency to sin? And in Romans chapter 6, Paul says this. Don't you realize that you become a slave to whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey his teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin. And get this, you have become slaves to righteousness. In other words, When you follow the cravings of your flesh, you feed your sinful nature, and you're resurrecting what Jesus has put to death. When you feed the desires of your flesh, you are resurrecting the nature that Jesus has already killed and crucified on the cross. And when you said yes to Jesus, you put to death that sinful nature. But when you feed the desires of your flesh, you're resurrecting that sinful nature. And Jesus says, no, leave it in the ground. That's not you anymore. Leave it alone. Instead, become a slave to righteousness. What does that mean? Nobody wants to be a slave. What is Paul talking about here? I think the West, Western culture has a very different definition of freedom than New Testament writers had. We have a very different definition of freedom. We've got guns and eagles and the American flag and the 4th of July and fireworks. Freedom, huh? Right? But if I could... Quote the Scandinavian intellectual, Elsa from Frozen. She says, I stole that joke, by the way, from John Mark Comer. Thank you, John. She says this in her song, Let It Go. I hate this song. My kids, this just drives me nuts. But she says this, she goes, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. That is the West's definition of freedom. No right, no wrong. Nobody can tell me what to do. There's no rules. I'm free. I'm free from rules. See, freedom in the West means that nobody can tell me what to do. Rules are an oppressive form of subjugation, so I'm going to do whatever the hell I want to do. And I chose that sentence carefully. I'm going to do what I want to do. But freedom described in the Bible is different. It's taking on some restrictions to enjoy a deeper and more meaningful life. In other words, you starve evil desires so that you are free to love God and others more deeply. Here's a perfect example. Marriage. When you get married, you starve the desire of sexual gratification with anyone you want to in order to give the the marriage that you have with your spouse a more deeper, deep and meaningful love and relationship. It's a restriction that you add to your life so that you can experience the freedom of marriage. That is the Bible's definition of freedom. It's allowing the the obedience to God, the restrictions of the Bible. I wouldn't even say restrictions. God knows, God, God, God designed this world. He designed marriage. He designed uh, everything that we desire Uh, there's always a counterfeit to what God desires and God has made a plan for every aspect of our life. And so when we read the Bible, we're not, it's not restrictive. God's just saying, hey, this is the best way to do this. It's the best way to live this life. In the garden, God placed a restriction on Adam and Eve 
so that they could be free to enjoy God without sin. Freedom is actually obedience to God so that you have the power to do and want what is good. I'll say that again. Freedom is actually obedience to God so that you have the power to do and want what is good. You add some restrictions on your life so that you are free to experience the love and joy that God has for your life. I'm going to close with this story. It's the story of Reynold III, or Reginald III. Maybe you've heard this story before. He was a 14th century duke in what is now Belgium, and he was grossly overweight. He was a big guy. In fact, his Latin nickname was the Fat. (laughs) And Reynold's younger brother, Edward, led a successful revolt against him, and his brother, Edward, captured Reginald, but didn't kill him. Instead, he built a room around him, in the Newark Castle, and promised him that he could regain his title and property as soon as he was able to leave the room. So instead of killing him, he builds a room around his brother Reginald, this big dude. And he says, I'll give you your title and, and your, your nobility back if you can leave this room, as soon as you leave this room. And this would have been easy for most people since the room had several windows and a door that was near normal size. There was nothing locked or barred. But the problem was his size. To regain his freedom, he needed to lose some weight to get through the door. But Edward knew his older brother, and each day he sent a variety of delicious foods to his room to keep feeding his appetite. And instead of dieting his way out of that prison cell, he grew fatter. Reginald grew fatter. And when Duke Edward was accused of cruelty, he could say, my brother's not a prisoner. He can leave whenever he wants to. I haven't locked his room. He can go whenever he wants to. But he stayed in that room for 10 years. And it wasn't until Edward died in battle that he was released. And then by then his health was so bad that he died within a year after that. He was a prisoner to his own appetites. See, Jesus has set you free. He has opened the doors wide. He has taken off all the locks, all the bars. He said, you are free. You don't have to stay in captivity to sin. You don't have to be a slave to sin and your fleshly desires any longer. You are free to go. But what does the devil do? He says, oh, but what about this? What about, I know you like this thing. What about this? And he keeps us in bondage to the desires of our flesh. He keeps, us, he keeps us captive to the, to the, to the appetites of, of our flesh. We're called to make little daily choices. The kingdom of God is growing within each person and every single one of us. And these small, insignificant, seemingly insignificant choices, one day at a time, saying no to the things of the flesh and yes to the things of God, Those are everyday decisions that we make, and they sneak up on us. We don't know when they come, and they just appear. And at the time, we think, well, what's the harm of doing it one more time? I'll start tomorrow. But every day, we make these these small, seemingly insignificant choices. And if you are consistent with those small, seemingly insignificant choices, those choices will turn into habits that will affect your behavior, that will determine your actions, that have eternal impact. But it starts with just a seed. This kingdom that's growing inside of you. And as you water that, you nurture it, you feed it. It grows. So let me close with this recap. I said, well, we we had a... God's kingdom is good. God is good. But I want to close. I normally never close with a recap. I think it's silly. But I feel like I want to close with a recap today. So we're all on the same page. Number one... God's sovereign plan is to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. That's his mission. It's, the inevitable, it's inevitable, and we will experience the fullness of this kingdom when Jesus returns. It's happening. And whether or not you participate in that is up to you. But God is bringing heaven to earth. Second thing is that God is slowly releasing more and more of his kingdom through his church today and through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the world. He's using his church to express and to model the kingdom of heaven and to release it into the world. Number three, all authority has been given to Jesus 
And we live in that authority in his name. He has authority over heaven and earth. It, it doesn't belong to the devil. Satan's rule is limited. He has to ask for permission. You have the authority given to you by Jesus. And the last thing is this. How many of you have heard, heard of the law of returns? It's a financial term that explains the relationship between small, consistent inputs that over time yield a far greater output. And I, I remember when I, was, uh, when I first started my 401k, or in the church it's called the 403b, and I, I looked at the, at, the, uh, at the effects of compounded interest, the compound effect. And if I make these small, and, and you know this, anybody who has a 401k, know that, they know this, that if you make these small, consistent inputs into that account, you look as the line is pretty flat early on, but then there's a point where it just spikes, right? And there's this exponential growth in, in the output and what you receive at retirement. And it's this law of returns that the input, these small, consistent inputs will yield a far greater output if you are consistent with these small choices, these small seeds, just a little bit of yeast. You keep putting that in there. So here's the law of returns. And you can write this down. I already said it. Law of returns. Uh, we make small, seemingly insignificant choices to obey God to starve the flesh. Oh, what is it? There we go. Small, seemingly insignificant choices. If they are consistent, form into habits that affect our behaviors, that determine actions with eternal impact. How many of you want eternal impact? It starts with just one choice today, one choice tomorrow, and you forget about it. But when you are consistent with those choices and you starve the flesh and you feed your spirit, you have eternal impact in the end. It grows just like the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Would you stand with me? Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for his helping hands. I thank you for the work that you're doing in our hearts. We want the kingdom of God to come in our lives, in our families, in our community, in our nation. God, we want to see heaven on earth. And Father, would you forgive us of thinking of the earth as something to be forsaken when your heart is to win the earth to Jesus. Your heart is to bring the, the your mission is to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. God, we are, we are sorry for thinking of it otherwise and we want to partner with you in bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. Show us how to have influence in our communities. Show us, remind us, God, when we are faced with those 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 forks in the road with those choices god would you teach us how to listen to those to that voice of the holy spirit to make a choice to starve our flesh and feed our spirit so that we can have eternal impact in jesus name we pray and everyone said amen Amen. we love you church we'll see you next week